Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and Happy New Year and welcome back to Markets and Morality, our IA show where we explore contrasting opinions within the classical liberal free market tent. I will be your host, Adam Bartha, Head of International Outreach at the IA, and today's outlook will be quite global indeed. Um, some of you might have seen the IA's Life with Littlewood Christmas Marathon Edition, where Mark and some of his guests were looking back at 2021 and assessing how it went from a classical liberal perspective. Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, not so well. But we have got a new year and new possibilities. So today's episode will not look back. We will be looking ahead. And we will not only look ahead to 2022, but the rest of the decade and try to assess the future possibilities from a free market liberal perspective. So today's $100 question will be, will classical liberalism dominate the next decade? And in order to debate this, I'm delighted to welcome two fantastic classical liberal thinkers to the discussion. One of them perhaps a tad more optimistic than the other. So on the optimistic side of the ring, we have Alexander Hammond, who is the director of the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. The IATP's mission is to champion African free market solutions for increased prosperity by helping to support those best positioned to make a change namely free market organizations and entrepreneurs on the ground. Alex, it's great to have you on board. Thanks a lot, Adam. It's great to be here. And on the slightly less optimistic side of the debate, I'm very happy to welcome Christopher Snowden, who is the head of lifestyle economics at the IA. Chris is the author of numerous books that focus on pleasure, prohibition, and dodgy statistics. And Chris had some pretty good predictions for 2021, so I really hope that he will not predict all doom and gloom for the rest of the decade. Welcome to you, Christy. Hi, I'm trying to remember what, what I did predict in 2021. I don't imagine it was very optimistic. Well, I'm afraid it wasn't optimistic, but it was pretty it was accurate. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually the so, way. Yeah, great to have you, Jens, on board. And I would like to kick off with a question uh, that starts with, giving a number. So I would like both of you to give me a number on a scale from one to 10 on how optimistic you are when it comes to the rest of the decade, whether it will be dominated by classical liberal principles or not. And 10 is being kind of the most optimistic part. So if you like a free market paradise and one being North Korea. So Alex, what's your optimism ranking? Let's say for me, it's a solid eight at the moment. Um, and I, I'm not saying that because I think by the year 2032, uh, that the majority of the world's population will be avid classical liberals walking around with their copies of Hayek and uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom or Bastiat's The Law. However, I'm saying eight because I think that the forces that classical liberals believe in, namely the ability of markets to innovate, provide wealth, uh, improve our living standards, really lift all boats, will continue. Um, and that will happen despite government regulation and innovation will continue to make our lives better and be ahead of the curve in that sense. All right. Eight is indeed a pretty optimistic scenario. 
Chris, what would be your equivalent? Well, I think I'd probably roughly halve that um, and say maybe four out of ten. I mean, uh, the classical liberalism is a pretty niche uh, area, really, when you, if you look at governments around the world. I mean, I would settle for just a, a basic understanding of economics, which, you know, um, obviously underpins classical liberalism, but it would be a, a big step forward for a lot of governments. So I mean, it's a big world and there's, um, you know, some parts are going to do much better than others, obviously. But as, an, as a global average, I would say about four, because I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic about very large chunks of it. All right, so I would like to challenge you first, Chris, because if you look back at history, it seems like the kind of continued growth of human prosperity is on a pretty straight upward trajectory. And one of my favorite fun facts is from the economic historian there, the McCluskey, who has pointed out that people today are 30 times more prosperous and wealthier than our ancestors were at the turn of the 19th century. So that's a pretty impressive feat. Um, why do you believe that this positive trajectory is not set to continue in the 2020s? Um, because uh, a, a lot of that growth is is quite specific to uh, a number of countries. I mean, China obviously has adopted enough capitalist principles to drag itself out of absolute abject poverty, but it's never going to be able to catch up or overtake the West because it's still at the end of the day, a one party state. So it's, it's quite easy to engage in industrial espionage and, uh, and, and take a few basic principles of competition in the price mechanism to lift yourself out from the terrible state they were in in the 1970s. But I, I wouldn't expect China to continue growing at the pace it, it has been doing, nor indeed would I expect many other countries to keep on growing at much of a pace at all. And I think, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I think there was a fairly brief period of hope and optimism, um, and, and it's largely over. I mean, there was a period, quite a short period between basically the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, really. I mean, if you want to go up to the financial crisis, I'll give you another few years. But really, it was a period of less than 20 years when things genuinely seemed like they were going to get better and they were getting better. Um, things have been pretty dismal since the financial crisis in most countries. And I don't see much sign of that being turned around because it comes back to my point about understanding basic economic principles. I mean, most of the world has been effectively practicing so-called modern monetary policy for the last two years and, and are now surprised to be seeing inflation and a rise in the cost of living and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I, I don't think just because things have been getting better and that, you know, certainly over the long term, they've been getting vastly better. And we have capitalism essentially to, to thank for that, along with technology and innovation, which, of course, is kind of tied up to some extent with capitalism. Um, but I, I think it's a mistake. We've seen this actually with the with the covid modeling, you know, in, in recent uh, months. It's a mistake just to draw a straight line up in, you know, in, this, in, in a continuous linear way and just assume things are going to keep getting better. They only get better if we continue to follow the methods and the policies that have got us there in the first place. And I don't see much sign of that. I think it seems to me that most countries are going backwards on that. that, that most of Europe is going backwards. The UK is going backwards. USA is going backwards. And then you have countries like Russia and China, where vast numbers of people live, where they're going backwards in a big way um, in terms of, well, both of those countries are becoming more and more the, like dictatorships, you know, they've really gone yeah. back to their their their, their past, um, and so I find that very worrying. And I don't think there's a lot of cause for optimism. But Alex might be able to change my mind about Africa, which is not some you know not a continent I know a huge amount about. 
Yeah, so Chris, you have been focusing very much on you know some of the laziness when it comes to hitting a certain level of economic development. Um, people might become, and politicians might become a bit more lazy to fight for further reforms that enable economic growth. But what, what, what is your perspective from an African kind of, um, the perspective of the African continent, Alex? Um, you are constantly in touch with liberal thinkers and entrepreneurs from across the African continent. Um, how do you see the future of that young continent? Yeah. So before I go just to Africa, I'd like to talk about some of the global trends for a second, because sure. I did spend a few years at uh, humanprogress.org, which is a project of a Cato Institute, which is all about these uh, showing how much better the world's getting thanks to essentially free markets and classical liberal ideas. And I would disagree with Chris when he says kind of uh, uh, end of extreme poverty only happened in a few areas or economic growth only happened in a few areas and of course I, I assume you can correct me if I'm wrong but he's talking about North America and Western Europe but on a global scale and say if we look back the long time so 200 years the extreme poverty rate's gone from 84 percent to before the pandemic it was about 8.6 percent and extreme poverty is uh, people who are less on less than one dollar per person per day, um, and even in, since the year two thousand, um, if you're if you were born in the year two thousand, in the first eighteen years of your life, ex- the number of people in extreme poverty has gone down by sixty nine percent, almost seventy percent. So that's pretty staggering, and it, you could argue the decade from twenty ten to twenty twenty the rate of decline in extreme poverty was slightly slower than the previous decade, but it's still going down. Um, and extreme poverty and other metrics of global well-being did decline during the pandemic. Um, the number of people in extreme poverty probably went up by about 120 million from about 8.6% back to 10% of the world's population. But that really only takes us back to mid 2016 and all estimates seem to indicate that by the end of the year um we will be back to pre-covid levels especially in regards to extreme poverty so last year was the fourth best year in global history for the percentage of people in extreme poverty being at its lowest this year will probably either be the best year or the second best year so that's pretty good um my point is sorry sorry just to interrupt really my point was really that you know, a third of the world's population live in china or india and both of those countries definitely have come on a lot but i wouldn't say they've come on by adopting classical liberalism i mean india has been run as a socialist country ever since independence really and it just drops some of the worst socialist ideas um 20 odd years ago and has seen the benefits of that in terms of driving down extreme poverty we're talking about extreme poverty here not about you know a really great standard of living and the same pretty much in china since since 1980 they haven't adopted classical liberalism they've just got rid of you know five-year plans and like the most lunatic communist ideas that they 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 were running beforehand that was all i was really saying so what are the key drivers of this economic development then alex well the world is becoming more Ignoring the last two years just because the data isn't available um, on the metrics I'm about to talk about. But if we look at, say, Economic Freedom of the World Report, which is a report by the Fraser Institute, the Cato Institute, and, a few, and I think the IEA is a member as well, and a few other think tanks um, help them with that 
the world is continuing to become freer since they started back in, uh, I think, in the 80s, 70s to 2019. The world is becoming freer. So if you're not, and they classify uh, economic freedom by looking at freedom to trade, the extent of government regulations, sound money, private property rights, rule of law, um, and whatever area, but I'm forgetting it. So even if we say 20 years ago, we could be more optimistic that the world's getting freer, we're, we're still freer now than we have ever been in human history. And if we talk, and as we work in classical liberal think tanks, there are more people working in um, the world of classical liberal think tanks and pushing these ideas than ever before in our history. So if you're not optimistic now, there's, uh, I, I don't understand why someone would be optimistic, say, 30 years ago, but not optimistic now. It's, sure, things could be much better than they are, but we're still living in kind of the, the best year ever for that, or at least if not the best year, best top four years. Mm -hmm. And Alex, you have mentioned trade for a moment, and I would like to stick to that um, because, you know, I try not to blame all bad things on COVID, but certainly the pandemic didn't really help people appreciate the kind of global interconnectedness and resilience of international supply chains. So as soon as there were any kind of blips in the system, politicians started to talk about the need to onshore production to become less reliant on other countries. But of course, if you want resilience, then putting all your eggs into one basket seems like a pretty bad idea. So it's much safer to kind of rely on international supply chains rather than just production within one country. So Alex, what do you actually think about global interconnectedness in the future? Do you think that will increase and continue to help us grow richer or will politicians succeed in their neo-protectionist measures? Well, I think it depends on the region. Um, and as we see with the sign behind me, I spend a lot of my time working on African uh, trade and African economic development. And in Africa, in the next decade, it's set to really, really increase the level of free trade. Uh, that's because at the beginning of last year, uh, 1st of January 2021, there was a free trade agreement, a continent-wide African continental free trade area was implemented. And to cut a long story short, 54 of the 55 African nations have signed it to show support, and about 39 have ratified it fully through their governments. So pretty good start. And the aim of a free trade area is within five to 10 years, 90% um, of tariffs on goods traded between African states will be abolished. And that's fantastic. So that means by uh, 2032, we should have, if everything goes to plan, 90% uh, of tariffs removed on goods traded between African states. And the benefits of this could be absolutely enormous. Uh, the World Bank, who tends to be not too optimistic about the benefits of free trade estimates that even just at the current schedule of things, even if it's not accelerated, that by 2035, this free trade area could lift 30 million people out of extreme poverty in Africa, increase regional incomes by about half a trillion, increase wages by 10%. And of course, they could be drastically wrong, but even if they're wrong by a factor of, say, instead of 30 million, it's 10 million but still a pretty good start just from a free trade area. Um, and I'd, I guess more importantly for classical liberalism, what this free trade area shows is that there's been an immense ideological shift on the continent. And I don't think this is talked about enough, but after independence, virtually every single African state, 
bar one or, or two or three uh, kind of took the African socialist route to uh, what they thought would be prosperity. And the organization of African unity, which was kind of, think of it as a really, they call it the dictators club nowadays, but it, they, they had the vision it would kind of be a bit like the EU. Um, and it was heads of states coming together to talk about African issues. And that was set up on the premise that this is a quote from Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first leader of Ghana, um, avid socialist and wanted the African or, uh, organization of African unity. His vision for it was a united socialist Africa is a necessary condition for the realization of the African personality. That's his quote, not mine. And it was extremely socialist for a long period of time. Yet today, the um, successor for the that organization is the African Union, and they've just put in place this free trade deal. Um, and even if we don't believe some African leaders uh, at face value, still the trend is the president of uh, Rwanda calls himself an avid free trader. The president of South Africa has recently said that free trade will unleash Africa's economic potential. So even if they don't The trajectory believe, is in the right direction. That's, yeah, even, that's even, rather reassuring. Even right. if a free trade area fails, which I don't think it will, but even if it does, it shows there has been an ideological shift in a positive direction. And that is something to celebrate. And sure. it seems classical liberal ideas will dominate in Africa the next decade more so than any other decade in their history. Music to my ears, but Chris, are you that optimistic about free trade when it comes to Europe, European continent? You have been busting the EU for being too protectionistic. Now the UK is outside of the EU. Are you optimistic that at least in that regard, the UK is going to perform well in the next decade? Not massively, but I mean, certainly it's, it's, it's plausible. Uh, Liz Truss seems to be doing her best to get lots of trade deals, so, so that's good. Um, and Alex is, of course, right about you know, removing tariffs and, and free trade being you know, one of the foundations of prosperity. You know, economists have been saying this for over 200 years, so it's, glad, it's good that the, that penny has largely dropped, um, although not entirely. And, and, and tariffs and, uh, are still quite popular with a lot of people, and free trade is still unpopular with people on both the left and the right. You know, um, the WTO has done great work over the last few decades in in getting politicians to to drop trade barriers and tariffs but if you remember you don't hear so much about it now but you know the naomi klein style of anti-capitalism from kind of pre 9-11 it was all about how the wto was this dreadful organization that's driving down living standards and so on getting rid of jobs um and of course, uh, you know, free trade is also pretty unpopular on the on the populist right. Um, people like Donald Trump, for example. So I don't think we can take it for granted. But yeah, I mean, look, Africa has a huge amount of potential, but it's always had a huge amount of potential which it hasn't fulfilled, and I hope it, it will now. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about uh, Africa, and as I say, Alex knows a lot more about it than um, than I do. But you know, it's a big world out there, and I, I would come back to the point that yeah, on on the European side, you know, it's just more and more regulation, and of course, they don't really believe in in free trade with the world. They believe in free trade within twenty seven countries, um, plus a few others they have their trade deals with, I guess. Um, and you know, the, the biggest country in the world, China. You know, the the hopes that we had that once China joined the WTO, it would uh, the WTO, it would liberalize and 
democratize. I mean, they've, they've been shattered. I mean, they, they, the Chinese Communist Party is reasserting its control. The president in particular is um, gearing himself up to be president for life, as is Putin. Um, and yeah, there are other places where, where things are on the up. And I think it's, Alex is probably right to say that, you know, generally speaking, there is more and more of an understanding that tariffs are a bad thing and trade deals are a good thing. But um, is that enough to lift my optimism above a four or a five? I'm not, I'm not really sure it is. Sure. Well, and uh, Sorry, do you mind if I interject? Yeah, go on. Yeah, sure. Well, well, it may be the case that in some parts of the world, the benefits of let's what uh some his economic historians call smithian growth which is economic growth through uh, gains from free trade and gains from trade wanes so in, in europe for example we could see uh, let me let me start with smithian growth smithian growth is basically gains from trade country a trades with country b and they both become better off um, thanks to comparative advantage and better transportation whereas that could be the case where eventually that runs out um, and it can eventually the gains of this trade can become exhausted. And we can, of course, say that tariffs uh, prematurely limit that, the gains that could be seen from that trade. However, what won't be limited in the next decade is Schumpeterian growth, which is growth through technological change and new ideas, which is essentially we get better at making things for cheaper or get better at making things that didn't exist before. And Smithian growth can help accelerate Schumpeterian growth. But as I say, Smithian growth can be exhausted. Um, and theoretically, the limit of Smithian growth is when all trade and transportation costs go to zero, which never actually happens. Um, more likely what's happening is kind of what we see in the EU where any reduction in, say, tariff barriers or isn't going to have too big an impact on overall economic growth or even if we open the market that much more. Whereas as Schumpeterian growth is based on the idea of new innovations, new ideas, the limits to that doesn't exist. And although regulation can limit the say implementation of new ideas thankfully we are at a point in kind of our history where moving jurisdictions and moving countries is easier than at almost any time so bright young well, bright any people bright people with innovative ideas to make the world a better place can move to countries that kind of can allow them to give it a try and succeed um so I think that's quite important is that the growth from innovation will continue, whereas potentially in some places like North America and Western Europe, the growth that comes from free trade might just kind of wane and peter out. Yeah, I think How that's a very, share that very fair point. Um, mm -hmm. because you know, the people who were against Brexit were saying, well, you know, actually how much economic growth are we going to get, even if we do get trade deals with all these countries? And the answer is actually not that much, really, for the reasons that Alex has already outlined. The big problem um is is non-tariff barriers and when people are organizing free trade deals it's really regulation they're talking about and most governments these days particularly in the west have lots of other priorities other than economic growth um you know so you'll have farming standards environmental standards and so on which people like michael gover are obsessed by which all hinder growth really um and so, yeah, the tariffs are not as big a deal as they used to be, except probably in some of the kind of ex-communist ex African countries, you know. 
Um, but that just reinforced my point that, you know, stifling regulation is going to be the thing that, that kills off growth in, in the future. And as I see no sign whatsoever of the kind of legislative splurge um, on uh, an increasing number of petty regulations. You know, this week the government said it wants to ban tomato ketchup sachets and vinegar sachets. I mean, this is this is a political class that is just constantly looking for stupid things to ban and, and, and ways to micromanage people's lives. And maybe I'm taking too much of a UK focus because I'm in the UK, but it doesn't seem to me that, you know, this is um, a problem that is unique to the UK, the European Union, for, for a start, is pretty keen on this kind of stuff. So, yes, of course, we might have innovation, we might have technology, but this, and we probably will, of course we will. Um, whether it will be game-changing in the way that the innovations of the, the last 100 years have been, we obviously don't know. But that seems to me a kind of a bit of a, a wing and a prayer to say, well, we'll have growth because we'll have things invented that we can't yet imagine. Yeah, we might do, um, or we might not. And Chris, well, well, sorry, Chris, just to pick up on one of your points, you mentioned that there's kind of the ever-growing regulatory state. What do you think is the kind of driving factor behind it? Because most developed countries are so much better positioned to create impact assessments and try to calculate the consequences of new laws and regulations. Yet, we still see a lot of these regulatory affairs continue to ever expand. So is it that we have created such a complex system for ourselves that it became very, very difficult not to have that complex regulatory state? Or is something else kind of the driving force behind it? Well, we have too many politicians um, and politicians are looking for things to legislate on. And they have a huge number of interest groups around them who are constantly urging them to do so. As you know, I deal with the nanny state stuff, mostly the IEA, and this is just a, a constant endless thing. It's only one small fraction of the overall regulatory burden but it's you know it, it's um kind of emblematic because it is it is endless and it goes on and on and that's just one special interest group you know the public health special interest group you've got the environmental lobby we haven't even mentioned net zero and you know the idea that we're going to halve carbon emissions around the world in the next eight years um or whatever the the, the target is but all this stuff is almost certainly going to um hamper growth as well it doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily do it but it, it does mean that we have an added obstacle here that we haven't had over the course of the last 200 mm. years when we've seen all this fantastic improvement and, and reduction in extreme poverty so it's partially about the wrong political incentives well they are hard to change i'm afraid um final question because although i very much enjoy listening to your thoughts we are slowly running out of time so we have started with two numbers for each of you, kind of your own optimism ranking. One for Chris, which was number four, and one for Alex, which was twice as much, number eight. So I would like to hear your top three or maybe top two ideas for changes in the world that you would like to see happen in the next decade that could increase your respective ranking by at least two points. So that would be kind of the free market paradise for Alex, number 10. And that would be kind of a mildly optimistic take six uh, for Chris. So Alex, would you like to kick off? What would be the kind of policy ideas that you think could improve the next 10 years even further? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and, and it's so hard because I think we've, in this discussion, we've divided uh, our, our optimism in two almost in regards to in poorer states, especially in Africa, um, 
their, 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 the policies they need to grow are quite different to the policies uh, that would help growth in the UK. That's, although only to an extent. So I think in if we're talking about the UK, um, lower taxes are certainly needed. Um, a great trend, so, so I'd say lower taxes, uh, and that will help, of course, Africa as well, but especially in Western Europe and North America. Another policy, which is kind of a curveball, which I've seen a lot more of in essentially since the start of a pandemic, which is actually very good, especially for younger people, is the rise in these digital nomad visas. Um, remote working is a, I think, has been one of the benefits of the pandemic and the rise of that. Um, and remote um, and these digital nomad visas essentially offered to different countries have different legislations, but normally it's a country says, if you meet these conditions, you can come stay in our country for X number of years. Um, typically, you don't have to pay tax and you can kind of just live there, be based from there um, while doing your work. And I think this is a really great way for a lot of poorer de developing countries to entice people in. The Caribbean has been very successful, in, but many states in the Caribbean have implemented these policies, and I'd like to see more of that. Um, and it also is a benefit because it helps uh, push the innovation we've been talking about. If the UK is the regulation of the UK is absolutely crazy, and who would want to start a business here? Why not go to Estonia, who's offering it, or Georgia, or um, Costa Rica is also offering a digital nomad visa, and then to try and start your business there so i think that almost touches on two different points we've got in western countries i'd say lower taxes and just stop with the increasing regulation whereas in developing countries trying to entice some of the talent mm -hmm. that can lead and policies that can lead to greater innovation great so lower taxes and freer movement of people i like them both chris what are your takes well, in quite a few countries, there needs to be a revolution, quite simply. I mean, a lot of the benefits we talked about has have come about since the collapse of a lot of communist countries, um, but there are still some remaining and there's some non-communist dictatorships still remaining. So there needs to be a revolution in places like Belarus or Turkmenistan and indeed in China. The Chinese Communist Party needs to be deposed. Putin needs to be deposed. Um, you know, there needs to be uh, you know, liberal democracy in these countries before they can fulfill their potential in any classical liberal economic sense of the word. So I think that's really um, the most important thing if you want to bring about change. Um, and in the rest of the world, we need to um, be teaching economics. And this is where the IEA comes in. You know, I'm not totally pessimistic about this. It is in our hands. It can be done. We have the answers. Um, but I, I look around a lot of countries and it seems to me that economic illiteracy is increasing. Um, uh, there's remarkable kind of ignorance and naivety about what the economy is and how you generate growth. And I think we'll, we'll pay the price for it in, with much lower economic growth. I mean, Alex mentioned sound money earlier on. We don't have any sound money. Um, and uh, an economy in which interest rates have been at rock bottom for well over a decade is not uh, is not a healthy economy. It's an economy that's that's scraping along. Um, 
you know, desperately trying to achieve some kind of growth. And I, I just don't think in a lot of these countries, absent the kind of things Alex mentions, a huge amount of innovation, low taxes, economic literacy, I just, we're not going to see the kind of growth that we took for granted for, you know, most of the second half of the 20th century, let's say. Well, it's not often that I say that, Chris, but I hope you will be proven wrong after a nasty start of 2022 or 20, well, not 2022, but the 2020s, at least, I think we do need the rest of the decade to go very well. So I'm definitely team Alex this time around, but thank you so much for your great ideas and the great discussion. And many thanks to our viewers as well who have joined us today. And do let us know what you think about the future and what you think about the arguments that the two chants have made um, today. And if you are interested in markets and royalty debates in the future, please do follow the IE London on Twitter or hit the subscribe button below this video. Also, a special thanks to our donors, without whom our work at the IE would not be possible. And if you do wish to become one of those donors and support our work, consider subscribing to our IE Patreon account where you can receive a lot of exclusive content and have a sneak peek into some of the behind the scenes discussions as well. But for now, thanks a lot for joining and I hope to see you in two weeks time again.